The opposite of fear is bravery. Hmm. Nope. The opposite of fear is curiosity. Is the glass half empty? Is it half full? That misses the point. Elevating curiosity will help you see and understand what's in the glass. This is Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, the podcast of curiosity. In each episode, Becky Saltzman interviews unconventional thinkers and doers in her unconventional way to dissect and uncover what you can use to see things others miss, make better decisions, and apply your talents in new and profound ways. Elevate curiosity, escape the boundaries of ordinary. Welcome back to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio. I have been gone for several weeks traveling for business, traveling for pleasure, traveling to conduct workshops for Applied Curiosity Lab, which is where we take Applied Curiosity into corporations and organizations to teach how to cultivate a culture of curiosity, how to cultivate curiosity individually, spread that culture to the entire organization, and then begin to use Applied Curiosity as a strategic tool. That's the work that has taken me away from my beloved podcast. But alas, I'm back. And I thought it would be fun to kind of mix the two, show and share how Applied Curiosity Lab training can be used to potentially address societal problems. And I thought it would be very interesting to play with it and apply curiosity to the societal problem of homelessness. I saw this interchange on Facebook, people talking about the problem of homelessness. And it was interesting because everyone had an opinion Some people felt that it was very much the fault of society, some policymakers. Others felt that it was very much the fault of homeless people choosing to use drugs or making poor life choices and government policies that enable homelessness or encourage people to live on the streets versus policies that neglect issues of mental health. And I thought, wow, these are all the kinds of things that probably are all true and all not true and get in the way of effective policy. So what if I took a little bit of the methodology that we use at Applied Curiosity and apply it to this problem? So here goes. The first thing is to identify the goal, which is to create what I call a micro solution. And a micro solution is the tiniest, tiniest input for the largest output or the smallest solution that has the biggest impact on solving the problem or a problem, probably more specifically a problem. And so this is what we are looking at. So this is the case for starting with garbage. And I'll explain. The first process is to go through curious questions. And curious questions are not necessarily the most obvious questions, but they are questions where the questions may seem very similar, but they are not the same. And I'll explain as we go. So here are some of the curious questions that I jotted down about homelessness. For whom is homelessness not a problem and why? And when thinking about these, think it's fun to think kind of on this, the larger scale You could think of for whom is homelessness not a problem and why you would have to be specific that maybe it's not a problem for people living on an island in uh, a remote part of the world. 
And why is that not a problem? And then you could start thinking, well, for everyone, it's a problem because of this, this, and this. But the way that this exercise works is to kind of go to the edges of extreme and a little bit maybe over the edge into preposterous, because that's where sometimes the most incredible divergent thinking starts that leads to the most effective convergent thinking. So I'll explain that a little bit more later. But as you're thinking of these questions, don't necessarily go to the most obvious, kind of go to the preposterous. We can get to the obvious later. All right, question number two, for whom is homelessness a problem and why? Number three, what kind of problems does homelessness present? And number four, what problems does homelessness present? So this is a matter of what kinds of problems versus what problems. Those are very different questions. And they're fun to think about separately. And next is what kind of problems does homelessness reflect? So that's a difference between present, problems that they present, and problems that they reflect. And it's important to distinguish between the two as you're making your lists. So if you want to pause to make the list, great. If you want to just listen as a thought exercise, that's cool too. If you want to just turn it off, wow, 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 we'll miss you, but so be it. We're all busy. Next question, what problems does homelessness reflect? And you might think to yourself, well, that's the same thing. No, the last question was, what kind of problems does homelessness reflect? And this is what problems does homelessness reflect? Slightly different. How many problems does a viable solution need to solve? And the next question is, what problems must serious solutions solve to be considered viable? Slightly different. Maybe it would be better to start with what problems must serious solutions solve to be considered viable and then go to how many problems does a viable solution need to solve. But we're talking about what problems versus how many problems and we're talking about serious solutions versus viable solutions. What problems can serious solutions ignore? Because you have to be able to identify problems that solutions can ignore to get to what is the micro solution. And which problems can we ignore? And for how long? So we may be able to ignore some problems to create a test to, to solve one or two problems and ignore problems three and four, but for how long? And there needs to be specific period of time. It shouldn't be until we change our minds, but it should be for a specific period of time. And measurable. And also, how do we break the problem into smaller chunks? And we may need to break the problem into smaller chunks before we decide what problems we can ignore. That's probably a better way to do it. And then, how do we break solutions into smaller chunks? And then smaller, and then smaller. And how do we prevent the magnitude of the problem from stifling our ability to tackle smaller problems? And we see this in homelessness. We see this in a lot of societal problems. Gun violence, for example. The magnitude of the problem often stifles our ability to tackle smaller problems. Or tackling smaller problems gets in the way of being able to tackle the larger problems. Which is the most important smallest problem to begin to tackle? And then what's been done to tackle this particular problem in the past? What has worked? What has not worked? How can we think preposterously about this problem? And how can we th think wisely about this problem in a new way? And then 
What is the one micro solution that would have the biggest or greatest impact? And that's really those questions, you know, feel free to jot them down, come up with your own. They're not exhaustive of the good questions that applied curiosity can create, but they start to get your brain thinking, or at least my brain thinking, about things in new ways, just the slight nuance to the different questions and what answers those might generate. So that's the question, that's the question phase. And then the next phase is really trying to understand some of the more maybe neuroscientific ramifications of creating solutions and how our decision-making might get derailed. We won't get into too many of the brain bugs or cognitive biases like we do in some of the training, but this is a good way to, to, to look at it, which is this particular problem with homelessness, we're confronted by discouragement and frustration. We're stymied by the magnitude of the problem, by our failed attempts to tackle the systemic problem and many other things. And homelessness is almost the complete package. It's societal, personal, and neurological effects. It's the complete package of problems that are really hard for us humans to tackle. And breaking down this problem into why it is such a challenging problem for us to tackle so that we can pat ourselves on the back for trying and pat ourselves on the back for continuing to try and give ourselves a little credit for continuing to work at it because it is hard and hard things are not always fun. First of all, homelessness involves a moral judgment. We have empathy, apathy, we have anger, depending on how we perceive it, when we perceive it, the context of how we perceive it and when we perceive it. If it hits close to home for us or if it's just getting in our way, those kinds of things, the context matters. And those emotions involve three brain structures, the medial prefrontal cortex, the posterior cingulate, and the angular gyrus. And that those three brain structures have an effect on how we make decisions. Looking at this further, there are three kind of chunks of how we look at homelessness. One is no fault one is some fault, and one is all fault or fault. And I'll break that down. So no fault is, we, some people say, well, people who are homeless have mental health disorders. There are children in, in unfortunate circumstances, adults in unfortunate fortunate circumstances, people with physical or intellectual disabilities. All of those are true in some of the cases. Not all of the cases, but some of the cases. And the way we perceive this problem is sometimes a function of how how we weight these different these different elements or causes or relationships. So if we see the problem as, you know, 80% of the people have mental illness and through no fault of their own, they are homeless, we may view the, the problem with a different moral judgment than if we view fault. And some of the things with fault are people who have taken drugs, have made bad life choices, or laziness, and sometimes it's laziness. We perceive laziness exacerbated by bad policy that enables the laziness. So if we look at the part of the homeless people and judge the moral judgment from that perspective, we come up with different solutions. And then some people look at kind of it's some fault. There's maybe some failed policy. There's somewhat bad decisions, stuff, maybe some things that we would have done at some point in our lives, but we got lucky and or we would do. Um, but we know that luck would be on our side. So there's, there's, there's those three chunks, fault, no fault, and some fault. And again, how you put those into different buckets can affect the decision-making or your, your ability to make rational decisions, potentially. 
fear. Um, fear, which directly hits us in the amygdala, involves things like crime, drugs, filth, spreading disease, a lack of sanitation or unsanitary situations, and negative economic effects. Again, all of these things do play a part in affecting our ability to make decisions around the issue of homelessness. The area that I'm particularly interested in is a new area of study, relatively new, maybe the last 10 years, which is disgust. Some people call it disgust and disdain. I'm mostly interested in disgust. And that leads me down to kind of closer to what I think is the micro solution that I'd like to focus on. Because disgust, disgust is defined as our feelings of repulsion towards certain objects, behavior, and people. And it's really, really powerful. It speaks to both our deepest, most irrepressible instincts and to our penchant for taming these instincts. And there are core disgusts. And these core disgusts tend to kind of bridge all societies. It's kind of human core disgusts. And of course, you could find exceptions, but some of the core disgusts involve something that you could eat, something that has or has had a life that has or has had a life of its own. So that would be maybe a decomposing corpse or something like that. Something that has a power to make other things disgusting, like maggots or bacteria. And homeless humans' garbage captures all of the requirements for core disgust. And that has very profound implications for our ability to make rational decisions. It affects all of our five emotions, the emotion of disgust, and emotions affect our, our views of morality, and our views of morality get in the way of making reasonable or reasoned decisions or finding reason-based solutions. So following along, garbage leads to disgust and fear, which elevates issues of morality, which kind of locks us into closer into identity politics which gets us closer to emotional policy, which gets us landed right in emotional solutions. And I mean, listen, there's a time and place for emotion. I'm not saying that emotion shouldn't be a part of anything, but to the extent that you can extract it out, you can get closer to rational decision-making. Now, if we remove the garbage, if we just look at the micro solution of removing the garbage from humans, um, we have humans who have homes have a policy, an easy way to remove garbage. But when it's out in the open, when it's spreading in the wind, when it's left by disencampment, you know, all of those things become right in our faces and it makes this reason policy less likely because we remove the garbage, we get closer to reason-based policy and then get closer to reason-based solutions. So the micro solution that I have come up with is to eliminate the garbage from homeless humans. All right. Seems easier said than done, but it's very important with a micro solution that we don't allow, allow solution creep. We don't allow a few extra little solutions because we feel that it doesn't, you know, it's just not quite enough to remove the garbage because it doesn't protect people. It doesn't protect the children. It doesn't protect, it doesn't address mental health issues. And it's really important not to allow solution creep to get like barnacles onto the micro solution because then you're not able to ever create a, a control group or even to create the kind of solution that might allow our brains, our human brains to come up with a really amazing and 
never, maybe never thought of before solution to all of the problems or the greatest problems of homelessness. So this is just eliminating the garbage from homeless humans. And I thought, okay, once I did this, I thought, okay, do I just keep this to myself? Do I just make a podcast about it? Do I contact people? So I did contact people in the government that deal with garbage because one of the things that's important is to acknowledge what you don't know. So there is the gap between what I what I know and what I want to know. There's the gap between what we all know and what we want to know. There's the gap between what I know or what we know and what we need to know. And then there's the gap between what we want to know and what we need to know. And as I talk about in my in my workshops or in the Applied Curiosity Lab workshops, that's the hardest gap to fill. But you have to acknowledge that you know, even though there are people who work in these fields who have not come up with a solution that you might deem obvious, it may be because you don't know what you don't know. So I had to acknowledge that I don't know much about how government deals with garbage. I know a little bit. Um, I took the time to learn a little bit, but a little tiny bit. I know that there are different government contracts for government garbage, residential garbage, and commercial garbage. So a government building might have a different contract for the removal of their garbage than a residential contract, than a commercial contract. It differs by cities. Some cities, some of the contracts are union, some are not. So there's a lot of things I don't know. I don't even know much about what's been done in the past with regard to garbage. I do know that there have been other programs involving homelessness that have been successful, not successful, successful for a period of time. And then, you know, there's not maybe longitudinal studies, but I'm less interested in that than the specific issue of the removal of the garbage. They, uh, so if we focus on that, then we have to, there's an assumption that tackling the challenge of eliminating garbage from homeless people should include the people who understand garbage best and who are least neurologically impacted by disgust. Because one of the things is that exposure to things can minimize your feelings of disgust. So the people who are least neurologically impacted by the disgust of garbage people are probably garbage haulers and presumably other people in the garbage business. They deal with it all the time. It doesn't disgust them as much. Much like anything that we, you know, we change our baby's diapers over and over again. They're not quite as disgusting as the first time. Or maybe people don't find them disgusting at all. I did in the beginning, and I got a little less disgusted by it. So I think that we could also make an assumption that people who understand the removal of the garbage best are the people who do it, not just the company executives, but perhaps the actual garbage haulers themselves. And so I had this idea, kind of a brain dump for extreme ideas for this micro solution, which I'll just kind of share a couple of these with you. Maybe you can come up with some of the some other ideas. I did share this with city officials. I don't know where it's going, but if any of you have ideas with regard to the removal of homeless people's garbage or this micro solution, I'm all ears. I think it would be very important and a wonderful opportunity to remove the disgust that gets in the way of rational decision-making. So here goes. We could include the issue of homeless humans' garbage in the request for proposals for garbage collection companies. So as a requirement for granting a contract, garbage companies could include a comprehensive solution to eliminating homeless humans' garbage. They could potentially assume primary responsibility, or they could assume some responsibility, maybe they could assume all financial responsibility. Maybe they could assume some financial responsibility. Maybe as a requirement for granting the bid, the garbage companies could just agree to participate in a formal 
idea generation plan to come up with possible solutions. So there would be no financial decision made about the removal of homeless garbage, but just a method for idea generation or innovation, allowing people who are there at the, at the kind of on the streets picking up the garbage to have input as well. Maybe provide incentive for haulers to contribute ideas for potential solutions or provide a method for haulers to contribute these ideas or bring all garbage contractors together to work on a master plan. Maybe we could set aside considerations for costs later so that we could strategize and negotiate now and maybe work on divergent solutions with these garbage haulers, which is you know, many, many possible solutions before converging on one best solution. You know, more companies are finding their social good, so maybe sharing it on their website, social media, or in their annual reports, or maybe we create a documentary that follows the process of this, this convergent thinking or this applied curiosity methodology to removal of human, homeless human garbage. So these are some of the things that I was thinking about using to apply, uh, think, thinking about using to showcase the value of a methodology, some methodologies of applied curiosity, but also maybe just getting this podcast out there to someone who might be able to take this and run with this or might be able to take this and use this questioning process or this process to solve some of these other societal challenges. Anyway, that's my short, maybe not so short, podcast episode for today. I hope you enjoyed it. I would love for you to share your ideas, your thoughts, input. I think we all need to come together on some of these big societal issues and elevating curiosity to allow us to remain curious when confronted by someone or something that challenges our worldview is going to be increasingly important because challenges to our worldview are not just coming from within our own brains. They're being manufactured from other people. And to the extent that we can kind of inoculate ourselves from being sucked into this vortex of silos of sameness and identity politics in order to come up with solutions, remain curious, and connect instead of diverge with each other through wide-ranging ideas is going to be, I think, key to our survival and our ability to get along in this increasingly global and ever-changing and rapidly evolving information overload world. So that is my two cents. Hope you enjoyed this podcast episode and keep me posted on any of your ideas. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Before you take off, I have a quick question and a few more things to let you know about. One, you can find show notes and all resources mentioned at appliedcuriositylab.com forward slash blog. And the question... Would you enjoy joining the ranks of curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers? If so, you're invited to join the Tribe of the Curious. You'll receive Quick Curiosity Monday. This short weekly email is curiosity lube for your brain. It consists of ideas I'm pondering, curiosities the tribe has shared, and things that I'm enjoying that I suspect you might too. Just go to appliedcuriositylab.com to join, or you can probably just pick your favorite search engine and type in Tribe of the Curious. And let's connect online at Becky Saltzman on Twitter and on Facebook at Applied Curiosity Lab. Finally, in order to avoid missing insights from outside the boundaries of ordinary, subscribe to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio on iTunes, YouTube, Stitcher, and all the other places podcasts hide and wait to be discovered. In the meantime, 
Elevate curiosity.